Last week, uh, for those who weren't here, we um, looked at the uh, issue of accepting our humanity and uh, not suppressing the negative thoughts that come through, not hiding from others and keeping that energy down so that we aren't discovered for who we really are. And the freedom that comes in contacting our um, authenticity when we're not hiding and we just let ourselves be seen and share that we can also feel the, the beauty and the, the love and the, the Buddha nature that's in there wanting to express itself. And remember, if you were here, we did those exercises, um, reflections about people uh, not knowing something about you and uh, uh, what people don't know about me is that I'm really you can fill in the blank, and then we had those dyads. Remember that from last week? Well, I wanted to continue on that theme a bit from a slightly different angle, the theme of not being bothered by our thoughts, our negative thoughts, our confusing thoughts. Um, not just the idea of accepting them and not hiding from them, but how to hold them in a way that isn't troublesome, isn't confusing. How the meditation practice itself can allow for us to have a, a spaciousness of mind around all the things that we have a hard time accepting, all the, the difficult thoughts. And I wanted to do it uh, by way of first reading a, um, a story to you, and it's a story, this might be a little too loud, uh, it's a story from uh, the Dhammapada, and it's a commentary on the story from the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada, perhaps you're familiar with, uh, is the um, these collection of teachings of the Buddha, uh, short verses that um, are put into a, uh, a collection as one of, the, um, one of the collections of the Pali Canon, the, of the, the suttas, the collection of discourses. It's the one that starts out, mind is the forerunner of all things, or um, hatred never ceases by hatred, hatred only ceases by love, this is an ancient, eternal law. That body of teachings. And each of those verses has a story behind them that is the source of that uh, particular verse. We did this in uh, the sutta class that I, uh, that I share with a small group of people. We did one of these verses earlier this week, and it was kind of fun getting into the story behind the teaching. So I thought I'd pick a, another one and explore it with you following up on this theme. And I'll, I'll read the the story. It's always nice to have a story. It's too bad you're not going to bed right now. <laughs> Don't go to sleep just yet, but uh, here's a, an evening story for you. And the, um, the verse that, that this um, story is the source of 
at least in this translation, actually I'll read a I'll read this translation first, and there's another one. There's lots of different translations of the Dhammapada. The one I like best, actually, is a Shambhala classic. Uh, it's a, one of those $6 pocket classics by, I think it's Thomas Cleary, either Thomas Cleary or Thomas Byram, I'm not sure, but I think it's Cleary. But I, I can't find my copy of that, so this will have to do. Uh, and the verse is, those who control their mind which travels far, conceives one thought at a time, is immaterial and arises from the heart. Those who control their mind will escape the bondage of Mara. Mara, the embodiment of confusion and evil. And this is the story. The master, the Buddha, while in residence at Savati, made this discourse with the reference to a monk, Samgarakita, by name. It is said that the son of a respectable family of Savati, after listening to the discourse on the Dhamma by the Buddha, embraced the holy life, and on his attainment of higher ordination, came to be known as the elder Samgarakita, and attained to arhatship within a few days. Arhat, being an arhat, that's the name for a fully enlightened being. This is no small feat to make it in a few days. Go through the first three stages, you know, and then make it to the, the fourth fully enlightened stage. So he became an arhat within a few days after hearing, imagine what that discourse sounded like, huh? Mm -hmm. um, his sister gave birth to a son whom she had named after the elder, and he became known as Sangharakita Bhaganeya, and on attainment of maturity, he received admission into the order from the elder. He became a monk too. He was named after his uncle, and he also joined the order of monks. After receiving the higher ordination, he spent the rainy season at a certain village monastery. There, he received two robes for use during the rainy season, one measuring seven cubits and another eight cubits. Intending the one measuring eight cubits for his spiritual preceptor, for his uncle, and the other measuring seven cubits for himself at the end of the rainy season, he, while traveling to visit his spiritual preceptor, moved about begging for alms on the way. While the elder was away from the monastery, while his uncle was away from the monastery, he arrived and entering the monastery, he swept the place where his uncle used to spend the daytime, kept water ready for washing his feet, arranged a seat for him, and sat down looking towards the direction from which the elder was to come. Seeing him coming, he went forward to receive him, took the bowl and the robe from the elder, and having seated him with the request, May your reverence sit down, took hold of a palmyra fan and started to fan him. So the, the nephew said, Oh, please, it's so nice to see you. Please sit down and let me fan you. He then offered water, washed his feet, and having brought forth that robe 
placed it at his feet, saying, May your reverence use this robe. He stood fanning him. At that, the elder, the uncle, replied, Samurakita, same name as him, I have a complete set of robes. Please, use it yourself. Reverend Sir, since the time I have received it, I have intended it for you alone. Oh, please make use of it. It may be so, Sangharakita, that you intended it for me, but I am sufficient in robes. Please, use it yourself. Please do not refuse, sir. By your using it, much benefit will accrue to me. Like, if you get it, you know, they are in, they're into uh, collecting merit as well, you know, so it's a very um, uh, noble act to offer something to an arhat, let alone any monk. So there was just a little piece of, hey, this will be good for me, and he really wanted his uncle to have it. In spite of his repeated request, the elder would not accept. As he stood there fanning him, this thought occurred to him. While the elder was a layman, I was his nephew, and when he entered the order, I became his resident pupil. Even so, my spiritual teacher is reluctant to share the requisites with me to take this offering. As he is unwilling to share the requisites with me, what is the use of my being a monk? I shall revert back to lay life. He was so distraught, he thought he was rejected and that there was something wrong with him. And he said, this isn't for me. Maybe I shouldn't be a monk. I'll go back to being a lay person. Then this thought occurred to him. Hmm, hard is the life of a layman. What shall I do to earn my living as a householder? Then he further thought, I shall sell the robe measuring eight cubits and buy a she-goat. She-goats breed rapidly. I shall amass a sum by selling every kid that is born to that goat. And having collected enough money, I shall marry. My wife will give birth to a son. Naming him after my uncle, I shall place him in a small cart, and taking my son and wife as well, I shall go to pay respect to my uncle. On the way, I shall say to my wife, Now give me the son, I shall carry him. She will say, Where is the necessity for you to carry the son? Come, drive the cart. She will be taking the son, saying, I shall carry him. And being unable to hold him, she will drop him. <laughs> and then the wheel will pass over his body. <laughs> and then I shall say to her, You neither handed over the son to me, nor were you able to hold him. I've been ruined by you. Saying this, I shall beat her back with a goading stick. As he was thinking so, while fanning... <laughs> He struck the elder's head with the palmyra fan. <laughs> the elder, reflecting as to why he was struck on the head by Sangharakita, he came to know all that had passed 
through the mind of the latter. Remember, he was a fully enlightened being. And then remarked, Sangharakita, you were unable to beat your wife. For what fault have you beaten an, an old elder like me? <laughs> Got busted. <laughs> he thought to himself, Indeed, I've been ruined. It seems that my spiritual teacher knows all my thoughts. It's no use for me to continue as a monk. And throwing away the fan, he fled. Then the young monks and novices chased him and took him to the master, to the Buddha. The Buddha saw those monks and asked, O oh, monks, why have you come here and what makes you bring this monk with you? True Lord, we have come here bringing to you this young monk who, being discontented, is running away from the order. Monk, is what they say true? Yes, Lord. Why, monk, have you committed this grave offense? Are you not a son of the Buddha who is steadfast in energy? And the offense meaning running away, leaving the order. Are you not a son of the Buddha who is steadfast in energy? Having renounced the world under an enlightened one like me, are you not able to discipline yourself so that you would be able to say that you too were a stream enterer, first stage of enlightenment, or a once returner, or a non returner, or an arhat, as the case may be? Why have you committed such a grave act? I am discontented, Lord. Why are you so? And then he related all that had happened, beginning from the day he received the robes for the rainy season, up to his striking the elder with the palmyra fan, and said, Lord, for this reason I fled from the order. Then the master said, Come, monk, be not worried. This mind has the nature of receiving an object of thought, even though it might be far away. And it is proper that one should strive for escape from the bondage of confusion, of wanting, of greed, of hatred, and delusion. And then he spoke this verse. Those who truly can control their mind, which travels far, and conceives one thought at a time, is immaterial and arises from the heart, will escape the bondage of Mara. And that's how that verse came to be. At the end of the discourse, the elder Sangharakita Bhaginaya, that's the, the nephew, attained to the fruition of the first stage of enlightenment, and many others too became Sotapanna as they heard it, and so on. This religious discourse was of benefit to the great multitude. There is a, um, a word in the teachings uh, talking about this capacity of our minds to weave a whole uh, world system in the blink of an eye called papancha. It's a great word. I love that word, papancha. It kind of it has a little punch to it too. And it means this proliferation of thought. This fellow had a serious case of papancha. 
from one thought, he just went with it, and before he knew it, there he was, leaving the order. It was hopeless for him. I've sometimes told the story of um, when I first went to my high school, it was a, it was a very uh, competitive high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School it's called, and I went there and I, there was a surprise quiz after about uh, two weeks, my first, uh, my first two weeks of that school, and the average grade was, was 40, 4 out of 10, and I got a 20. I had never failed test before in my life. By that night, as I lie in bed, and I didn't tell my folks that first, that first night, I had myself getting thrown out of school, um, flunking, leaving school altogether, running away, and I ended up in my mind as a, um, a wino, a Bowery <laughs> bum, that was the, the image, on, uh, in Lower East Side, New York. You know? I thought that was where I was headed. My mind really went away with me. And you probably can think of sometimes in your life where something happened and you had this intense proliferation of thought, whether it's somebody rejecting you. I remember something else that comes to my mind. That when I first started traveling on my own uh, uh, in my early 20s and I was in Europe, I, was in, I went to Sweden and um, went to discos. In those days, it was, uh, discos were popular. It was like around 69 or so. 70, 69, and um, I would ask these beautiful Swedish women to dance. That's all there was. They had these beautiful women there, and we, we dance. And I don't know. Maybe I was a little dorky, or what, or intimidated, but or maybe they just plant these beautiful women there to reject you. But one after one, another was, you know, sorry, sorry. You know. And I did this after like two or three nights. I just was devastated. And then it, it occurred to me, I remember reading Be Here Now, I was carrying it around like a Bible in those days. It must have been 70, 71. And, um, uh, and I was back in my room inspired by Be Here Now and reflecting on, oh, what was I doing? Taking a five-second encounter from somebody who I never met before as the, uh, the full estimation of my self-worth, you know, whether they wanted to dance or not. They might have had a, somebody might have had a sore foot or had a boyfriend coming in five minutes or whatever, or maybe they just, you know, I wasn't their type, but I had lost touch with who I was because I was basing it on, on their assessment or what I projected their assessment was of me. We do this a lot. We create these scenarios, and then we get frightened by them. This uh, story of the man who paints a tiger in, his, in the cave, and it's a very uh, good artist, and he paints this lifelike tiger in a ferocious stance, and then he throws up his palette and brush because it's so realistic and lifelike, he gets scared and runs away. That's what we do. We paint these tigers in our mind, 
and then we try to run away, except we have our head with us wherever we go. We can't get away. This is papancha, believing those thoughts. The danger comes from not only believing one thought, but having that thought start to create a whole reality that you take to be who you are, whether it's um, your self-image, oh yeah, I'm a loser, or I'm a klutz, or I'm a whatever it is, and then you start acting that way to confirm your assessment. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that says, this is how it was, this is how it always was, this is how it is now, and therefore this is how it will always be. That gets into a lot of trouble. Have you seen that in your life? Just see if you can have any uh, finish to this line. I'm someone who always, or I'm someone who never, see if anything comes. Are there ways that you let that thought pattern take over? The freedom comes, one freedom, can come from not being bothered by your mind, by your thoughts. And there's different ways of not being bothered by them. One is starting fresh and seeing, oh, okay, here it is, a new reality that's never happened before. One way is having uplifting thoughts take their place. You know, when you're having an uplifting thought, you're not bothered by the, the negative ones, by the confusing ones. But the real profound way that the practice offers us is seeing how empty those thoughts are. They are as real as we make them or as empty as we make them. One way that we can use the meditation practice is to use thought as the object of meditation, to look directly into the nature of thought. It's a very fascinating exercise to notice, see if you can pick up the thought patterns before you get caught by them. In some sense, catching your thoughts before they catch you. I uh, have shared, maybe a couple, a few people have heard this, this story on one retreat, uh, one three-month course, where I was particularly noticing judging, just rampant in my practice. And there were, everywhere I went, there was judgment. In the, in the mind. It was very, very humbling. And after a while, I started to um, do it as an experiment to see if I could catch those judging thoughts and give some space around them. What I did was uh, tag on the line from the third Zen patriarch around judgment and thoughts. I've mentioned this before. The, the, the line that really spoke to me is, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. 
that made sense to me. Okay? So every time I'd see a, a judging thought, I would just add on that first line as a reminder, the burdensome practice of judging. Okay. Particularly around meal times, you get a lot of chance for the judging mind. That's the, you know, the social uh, time. And there I'd be, you know, oh, doesn't he think he's mindful taking his food? The burdensome practice of judging, you know. She's going for a third helping, the burdensome practice of judging, you know. Oh God, I hope people don't see what a that I just dropped that, the burdens and practice of judging, what a klutz I am. And I go through a meal 50, 75 times at least, just tagging that line on. And after a while, it would become comical as I started having my radar tuned into that habit of thought. And you get some lightness when you notice it in that way. Joseph Goldstein has a uh, suggestion. He says all thought is so empty, it's so bland that it's just, is just the same as having a thought, the sky is blue. There's not anything earth-shaking about that, it's just oh, the sky is blue. So he says you might tag on to the end of a thought, you know, a judging thought. Oh, God, what a dummy you are. The sky is blue, and the sky is blue, you know. Hey, I'm really doing this well now, and the sky is blue. So you don't get into the content of your thoughts, and you see through the emptiness of them. This is uh, uh, from Joseph in Insight Meditation, Path to Freedom, talking about thoughts. He says, for the purpose of meditation, nothing is particularly worth thinking about. Not our childhood, our relationships, not the great novel we always wanted to write. This does not mean that such thoughts will not come. In fact, they may come with tremendous frequency. We do not need to fight with them or struggle against them or judge them. Rather, we can simply choose not to follow the thoughts once we are aware that they have arisen. The quicker we notice that we are thinking, the quicker we can see thought's empty nature. Although meditation is not thinking, nevertheless, it can be clear awareness of thinking. Thought can be a very useful object of meditation. We can turn the great power of observation onto thought itself in order to learn about its inherent nature, becoming aware of its process instead of getting lost in its content. What is a thought? Have you ever wondered that? Yeah. I used to ask every meditation teacher when I was in my first years of practice that I, that I encountered, Where, what is a thought? Where does it come from? Nobody ever gave me an answer that was satisfying. Usually it was, who knows? That's what I would say. But it's mysterious how this little blip that comes onto the screen seems so, so real. I'd like you to do a, a, a short exercise around this, around noticing thoughts. We won't do dyads, don't worry. <laughs> Just close your eyes for a moment and sit up. Good. 
and uh, we'll do this uh, mindful practice of looking directly at thoughts. Just imagine it's like you're a, a cat at a mouse hole, right? And your task is to notice thoughts as they come out of that mouse hole. See if you can catch them. And some of them might be very obvious, some of them might be very subtle, particularly the ones that say, hmm, not having any thoughts now. That's one of them, okay? <laughs> and we'll just take a, a minute, see if you can notice, you might get a sense of how many have come through, starting now. Anybody have no thoughts? <laughs> I used to do that when I was a school teacher. I'd say, uh, we'd do this little exercise, kind of like, a little bit like what we were just doing. Uh, and I, if anybody could go with no thoughts for a minute, or sometimes I did it for two minutes just to get some quiet there, then the whole class would not have homework for a week. Right? <clears throat> One time, there was a student who absolutely believed that she didn't have any thoughts. So, what to do? We didn't have homework that week. But most of the times, it was, you know, forget it. Pretty amazing, huh? How many people had at least 10 thoughts? Okay. How about 20? How about 50? Yeah. If you're paying real close attention, then you're probably counting more. <laughs> so you don't get gold stars for saying, I had three. It may be just that uh, you can't catch. They're so, so fast. Isn't it amazing, this creative aspect of mind? And what's even more amazing is that we give them so much power. All of those random meanderings of mind and when we latch on to it and believe it, that becomes our reality, like that, that monk. When we see how empty they are, they come and go on their own, no big deal. Joseph also has a good suggestion, maybe you've heard. He says, if you're really troubled by your thoughts, uh, on a retreat particularly, he gives this advice. He says, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. 
which for all intents and purposes they are. You don't own your thoughts at all. They're just popping through. You don't say, okay, I think I'll have a really troubling thought right now. Uh, it just happens. The third Zen patriarch, another, another line says, when the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When your mind, and when by this mind, definition of mind, it is when you are, when your attitude, when your natural state of being, actually, is not disturbed by the different contents of mind that come through, nothing in the world can offend. You're not bothered by them. And when those thoughts don't offend, they stop existing in the usual way, in the old way. Mind has different meanings. Sometimes we talk about mind, our mind is really bringing us down as being the, the thought manufacturer. And the deeper understanding or use of mind is big mind with capital M that is the source of all phenomena, of consciousness, of those thoughts, of the natural state of, of being, the ground of being. And in the Third Zen Patriarch it says, to, um, to seek that big mind with the small discriminating mind, to try to catch it and, and, and grab hold of it, is the greatest of all mistakes. This is uh, Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, when you are practicing meditation, do not try to stop your thinking. Let it stop by itself, if it will. If something comes into your mind, let it come in and let it go out. It will not stay long. When you try to stop thinking, it means you are bothered by it. Do not be bothered by anything. It appears as if something comes from outside your mind, but actually it is only the waves of your mind. And if you are not bothered by the waves, gradually they will become calmer and calmer. That everything is included within your mind, a big mind, is the essence of mind. To experience this is to have religious feeling. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It's just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. To speak of waves apart from water or water apart from waves is a delusion. Waves and water are one. Big mind and small mind are one. And in that way, you don't have to get rid of anything. Just seeing, oh, there's some ripples. And there's the ocean underneath that they're coming from. And that passage is uh, very similar to a classical passage, the last one I'll read, uh, by a woman, the nun Niga Niguma. And she says, 
Don't do anything whatsoever with the mind. Abide in an authentic natural state. One's own mind unwavering is reality. The key is to meditate like this without wavering. Experience the great reality beyond extremes. In an ocean, a clear ocean, bubbles arise and dissolve again. Just so, thoughts are no different from ultimate reality. So don't find fault. Remain at ease. Whatever arises, whatever occurs, don't grasp. Release it on the spot. Appearances, sounds, and objects are one's own mind. There's nothing except mind. I want to ask you for a moment to reflect what thoughts trouble you, trouble you these days. Just go inside, see if there's anything on your mind, as we say. Okay. Let's see, what, what kinds of thoughts, any particular issue or relationship or situation that's troublesome for you or that stirs you, gets you confused? And how would your, your life be different if you didn't take this pattern of thought, these thoughts, to be real? If you truly saw the emptiness of them, just like the sky is blue, imagine being free of the grip of believing this particular thought pattern. Get a sense of the freedom and the ease, the energy that would be open and released if you were no longer battling, but seeing, getting in touch with the ocean underneath the waves. And I would encourage you this week to pick this particular thought pattern or one that you find yourself caught in, whether it's worry or fantasy or anticipation or anger or doubt or whatever it is. Name it. Name it and see it clearly, just like I was talking about the burdens and practice of judging. Name it kindly without believing it, just as an experiment this week. This is where the real freedom lies. Not by trying to get rid of anything, but just by seeing it as part of a vaster, deeper understanding of mind. Wandering far, this is the other translation, going alone, bodiless, lying in a cave, the mind, 
those who restrain it, not confused by it, from Mara's bonds, they'll be freed. So perhaps we can take just a few moments if anybody has a a comment or anything they want to share or ask about from this talk of working with thoughts. We'll be out in just another few minutes, so if you could stay till uh, till the end, we do the loving kindness. Yes, I have reflected a lot about this uh, nature of thoughts and them being uh, just occurring and being uh, uh, void and empty and so on. However, they they guide our actions. And there are thoughts that are not so important and thoughts that are uh, conducive, very skillful, conducive to good behavior. Right. And thoughts that if uh, we act upon, then you can cause uh, some damage. Right. So then the reflection of them, of uh, the emptiness, is not very useful for how to uh, act or not to act. So, um, the idea is not to get rid of any thoughts, as we've been saying, but seeing how empty they are, then you can choose which ones you want to give energy to. Until you see how empty they are, you are hopping on the train of all the thoughts. Every one seems real and believable. But when you see how empty they are, then you have enough space around them to reflect and see, ah, is this thought serving me? Do I want to act on this or not act on it? Because when the thought gives rise to speech or to action, then the karmic result is is much deeper. So what I find helpful as as a guideline is to get a sense of the tone that the thought is coming through. Often you'll find thoughts coming from with a a jagged edge or some grasping or some contraction or a little bit of of, um, tightness, either thoughts that are frightening or thoughts that are grasping that have a little finger pointing in there. Those probably won't serve you so, so well, even if the content makes sense. But coming from that place is a very different um, source of action than when we get in touch with the thoughts that come from a much more connected place. And we all have this experience, I'm sure. You know that when, when you kind of hear the tone inside that says, this feels right, or this doesn't feel right, that has a wisdom to it, and a depth to it, a connection to it, those are ones to start trusting, seems to me. So that's a place where having a little bit of pause you can, you can choose, you can discern. But then there are also thoughts that you have very deeply ingrained that are not very good. So, so even when you have that space and you, well, at least when I see them coming and I can say, okay, well, this is my my Latin American racist upbringing who is making me think this. Mm-hmm. 
or the, my Latin American macho upbringing, which is making me be in this way. Right. And I don't act upon that, but they, they keep coming. So how can we practice so that this... Just, just like we just were talking about, not to need to get rid of anything, just keep on noticing, oh, this is my Latin American macho uh, tape running, okay? If you said every time that kind of thought came in, oh, Latin American macho tape, you know, <laughs> that's where the freedom is, because then you're not enmeshed in it or fighting it, then you can be in on the, the joke. That's it. Just try it. I mean, that's, that's, that's how I work with judging, and believe me, you know, I, I, was a, I am a very good judger. I can still have lots of judgment, but I've seen it so much and focused on it that I'm a little bit less likely to believe all those judgments. Yeah, I'm a little bit less macho, too. What's that? <laughs> I'm a little bit less macho, too, by, by just noticing and not doing anything about it. And, uh huh. Yeah. yeah. When, when you can keep from acting on it, you have, uh, you've entered a whole other realm because then you're not perpetuating, you're not planting those seeds to arise again. But you don't have the practice, so that it will just make them obliterate. Uh -uh. From yeah, that's exactly what the point is. You're not trying to make them obliterate, you're holding them in a big ocean where you see these are just waves. And when you're not pushing energy, putting energy into keeping them down, then not only are you freeing energy for those thoughts to come up, but all the other beautiful thoughts. Because then there's not fear that you're adding to the equation. Yeah. I wish we had more time, but, but it's about time to go. I would really encourage you to pick the theme that came to your mind or any particular theme that you're working with um, this week as an experiment. Okay? How many people have a, a thought pattern that they could see working with? Okay? Name, have a name for it right now in your mind. Okay? So you can recognize it as that tape. And if you can, when you notice it, say it with some lightness of heart. You know, oh, paranoia. Okay, <laughs> whatever it happens to be, you know. Really, the lighter the tone, the more space you get around it. Okay, and then we'll, we'll close with a loving kindness, and next week we'll check in and see how that was, right? So just feel yourself alive. Just feel your heart. Feel your goodness. It would bring you to an evening like this to sit with people. Get in touch with that ocean of being for just a moment. And as you breathe in, breathe in through the heart and fill yourself with benevolent energy. And as you breathe out, breathe out through the heart and surround yourself and extend that energy outward. And a few moments of kindness to yourself. May I be happy. May I 
see through my confusion with compassion. May I have enough space in my heart for my love and beauty to shine through. And then direct these kinds of thoughts, this energy to everyone here and from this room to all beings in all directions. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings see through their confusion and fears with compassion. May all beings feel the kindness and caring that's in their heart and allow it to shine through. May all beings everywhere be happy. Okay, thank you for your attention. Have a good week. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on June 19, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed 